Good evening. I fear that society is breaking down in our cities. Neighbours don't even know the Christian names of those that live next door to them. Often they have no shared interests, no shared culture. In too many cases, in our inner cities, people are not even sharing the same language. And part of this community breakdown is, I think, a terrifying rise in violence. Do you know, violence that led to injury has risen 22% in the last calendar year alone. A nine-year-old girl was shot in a house in Notty Ash, a suburb of Liverpool, last night. There were six knife murders in London last week in the space of four days. Deaths even in Kent Market towns like Tunbridge through knife crime. And another phenomenon that appears to be sweeping the country in the most terrifying manner happened in Nottingham two days ago. Have a look at this. A gang of 50 youths going into a, into a McDonald's and literally ransacking the place. Complete and utter lawlessness. But it's not just in Nottingham, it happened in Oxford Street just a couple of weeks ago, and yet appeared on TikTok to be a cause of celebration. In Georgian that in my great track suit, see the bulging that see the motion clap when you're throwing it back. These females planning on doing me wrong, so I'm grabbing a dumb at the Trojan pack. Post a location after we're gone, can't slip and let them know it. How life would have been if I never did take them risk and would have I prospered. Floating and I won't go under. Can I be homophobic? It's absolutely terrifying. It's appalling. So it isn't just gun crime. It isn't just knife crime. It is outright lawlessness. I've talked about breakdown in society, but hey, there's something else we should talk about, and that's policing. What the hell has gone wrong with our policing? Most of us now who are victims of crime don't even bother to report it. So the official figures on crime stats are, in my view, massively, massively underestimated. My question for you at home this evening is can we take back control of our streets? Give me your view, farage at gbnews.uk, or is it simply just too late? Are our cities gone? Well, I, I refuse to believe that. And that's because I knew 1980s New York as a young man working in business, and it was a very, very scary place. You didn't leave a bar or a restaurant until the taxi was there, waiting on the pavement edge. And even then you were worried, walking the length of a cricket pitch to the car. And a man called Rudy Giuliani came in as mayor, worked with the police, and turned it around. I refuse to believe that it's too late. But what of our police? Because they, it seems to me, are letting us down very, very badly. We're joining me, Peter Blexley, and of course, famously, Metropolitan Police Detective, author, many other things. Peter, when you see mobs, you know, ransacking Oxford Street, going into McDonald's and causing chaos, and that apart, from the rise of knife crime, gun crime, um, genuine serious injury against the individual. Uh, can we save this? Can we turn this round? Well, there is no doubt that policing is in crisis, and it has been for some considerable time. There are other issues, particularly with these young people ransacking places. What kind of upbringing must they have had? But I'll stick to policing, if I may. Um, about 25 years ago, 
some bright spark thought it would be a really good idea to send the up-and-coming cops to go and get degrees. So they went off to our great seats of learning. Many of them did. Oxford, Cambridge and many other red brick unis. And they came back with their degrees, so they had letters after their name instead of before their name, like PC and DC, you know. Um, and, and, and quite frankly, many of them came back with a whole head full of pseudo-intellectual claptrap, which they applied to policing. Policing is about practicalities. You really don't need a degree to be a cop. You need to be practical, to be endowed with common sense so that you can find solutions to problems. You also need to be persuasive so you can persuade victims to come forward, witnesses, persuade criminals to become informants and persuade your colleagues you're doing the right thing. Um, and, and sadly, a lot of this has been lost by the police trying to be everything to everyone the painting rainbows on cars, the holding flags, the skateboarding with protesters, the dancing at pride events, and all of that. It has Peter no Blexley, place. Peter you're out of date. You're, you're, you're not in tune with modern times. I've read reports from left-wing think tanks that say Bobby's on the beat make no difference to crime whatsoever. What say you? Well, that's utter nonsense, of course. But the trouble is, in modern-day thinking, you can't measure the effectiveness of that Bobby on the beat. Because quite simply, that officer could leave their station in the morning to go and patrol a given area for eight hours and they might come back and they may well not have arrested anybody, mm. but the good ones will come back awash with tea and biscuits and awash with information. Intel. Because they've engaged with their communities. Yeah. But you try telling some management kind of over intellectualising senior officer that I've actually been effective today and they'll say I can't put that into a league table I can't show how well our service is doing so sadly that's one of the reasons why neighbourhood and community policing has been eroded and it's so strong it's a principle of policing it must come back there were other factors, the terrorist attacks of some years ago and what have you, sure. redeploying of resources but, but, you, but... Know, you talk about numbers and what's measurable I'll give you a measurable number. 50 youths ransack McDonald's in Nottingham. Not a single arrest. Yeah, and I've got a son studying at Nottingham, soon to go back to the university there. And that's a concern for me. You see, if we go back to that Bobby on the beat, what prevented a lot of crime, and I know I'm talking about some years ago, but I firmly believe it is still applicable, what would stop crime is the fear of that Bobby turning the corner and suddenly confronting you. Now, clearly, those youths are well aware of modern policing and they probably knew that there was nobody going to come, nobody going to turn up, and that offence will now be investigated retrospectively. But will the Crown Prosecution Service say prosecuting somebody for nicking a burger and perhaps a portion of chips is that... Does it make sense financially? So will um, they do it? And in the case of Nottingham... Of the 50, and I haven't got the precise numbers, but the majority were young black men. Does that pose the police a problem? Well, the police have tried to dance around the whole race issue for a long, long time. Because back in the dark days of the late 70s and the early 80s, when I was policing in uniform just a few short miles from here, some young black men were fitted up, beaten up, 
brutalised. So that did happen? Oh, it most definitely happened. And they were subjected to some appalling behaviour. Many police officers, to give credit where it's due, have taken great strides to readdress that. But of course, it is race is inextricably tied into the thorny subject of stop and search, yeah. which forever rears its head again and again and again, and is, of course, a mightily powerful tool for the police, but they haven't been able to kind of get it right. Partially because their leaders are so cowardly and silent. Police officers on the front line need vocal leaders that will stand up for them, defend them, put their case forward, instead of worrying about climbing that greasy pole of promotion. Peter Blacksley, plain spoken, as I absolutely thought that you would be. And really the message there from Peter Blacksley is that the fish rots from the head down. The vast majority of policemen and women out there want to be able to do their job, and they really do. Let me know your thoughts, farage at gbnews.uk. Can we get back control of our cities? I refuse to surrender. Now, amidst the absolute carnage and chaos of the Conservative leadership race and the continuing blue-on-blue -blue attacks, and Rishi is never going to give up, I don't think, there is some good news for the Labour leader, Sir Keir Starmer. Uh, polls now, and quite a consistent number of polls, showing him to be... 12% ahead, and it sounds like quite a big number. I'm minded to say that he did steal the initiative with his cap on domestic energy prices, even if there was no explanation of how to pay for it, but that perhaps helped. That was one clear policy statement that Starmer gave when he came back from his summer holiday. But I'm tempted to think that a Labour leader with charisma and a real vision for Britain would be at least 20 points in the lead. That's my view, but let's ask Nigel Nelson, political editor of the Sunday Mirror, Westminster veteran. You've seen it all before. Indeed. You've seen leaders <laughs> climb and leaders fall. I mean, I guess 12 points in the lead. You're relatively happy? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, it's gone up from eight points on Sunday to 12 points now. He actually got a 15 the previous week. Um, but the 12 points now, if he was to maintain a lead like that, that takes away any idea of coalition with SNP or Lib Dems or whatever. He would be returned with a 58 MP majority. So it's a good lead. Now, obviously, we're um, some way away from the, from the election. I still think it might come in, in spring, but we'll see. Yeah. Um, but we're somewhat, somewhere away. So do you really? Snap. Yeah, I do. I, I mean, it, it rather depends on um, when the new prime minister comes in. The question really comes down to, do you get a bounce from that? Um, there's some suggestion that, 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 that uh, Liz Truss, if it's her uh, and Rishi Sunak, haven't performed well enough to actually get that bounce. But supposing they did, mm. um, the best thing they could do would be to hold a snap election to get their own mandate not make the mistake that Gordon Brown did back in 2007 where he dithered yeah. and of course he only then lasted till 2010. Equally, but, but equally Theresa May tried to do that in 2017. And he can fail. And it all went wrong. Yeah, so. I mean elections are a gamble yeah. as we yeah. know. Yeah. All right, so he's got a lead. At the minute he would win a majority but on so many major issues. I've no, I've literally got no idea where he stands. I'm hoping to speak to the Shadow Minister for Immigration, Stephen Kinnock, uh, this evening. Uh, but, I mean, you know, the cross-channel... Well, actually, when I say the cross-channel, I mean, it isn't, it isn't, uh, you know, a crisis. It's becoming an emergency. Yes. 
I mean, we're talking about we're talking about predictions now of sixty thousand this year crossing the channel, which is double what double what we had last year. Um, and yes, you've got to do some uh, something about so it. So where do um, Labour stand? Help me. Uh, I don't know. Is the answer good? Um, and um, <laughs> uh, so far, they've criticised the way the Tories have done it. I haven't seen at the moment what I, what I would call a credible alternative. I mean, the answer would be is to the only way to disrupt um, the uh, organised crime gangs is to make sure you can do things like uh, 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 not have to claim asylum in this country, claim asylum elsewhere, so there's no need to cross the channel. There's all sorts of sort of, sort of things like that. What I do think Labour is doing is they're busy at the moment constructing the kind of manifesto they will put out come election time. And I think Keir Starmer being cautious means that he's not going to shoot his bolt, if you like, too early, mm. um, and we'll, we will actually hear these policies a bit later on. But we could do with a hint, couldn't we? I mean, when it comes to energy supply, I, again, I literally have no idea. Does he believe we should increase domestic gas production? Doesn't he? Does he believe in more offshore wind turbines? I mean, we're, I mean, these are major, major issues affecting this country and its future. And I completely understand why he may not be giving detailed policy proposals. But a steer might be handy. Yes, I mean, uh, I think that, again, it's a question of priorities. So the absolute priority at the moment before we consider the energy supply, I mean, things, things we rather hope will get better if the Ukraine war ends. And there are some predictions it might end by the end of the year. Um, but <laughs> at the moment, at the moment we're looking at, we're looking at um, uh, absolutely appalling bills for people, um, starting in October, going through January yeah. into April, bills that people can't afford. We've got a government that is paralysed at the moment. We've got no real kind of um, policies from Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss about how they would deal with these rising bills. So what Keir Starmer done, uh, has done is fill the vacuum mm. and he's saying, look, I've got a costed policy. Yeah, no, I agree with that. So we know, we, that. we know it's going to cost 29 all, billion all and we know where it comes from. Albeit just for six months. For six months is a beginning, yeah. yeah. I mean, it may well be you'd have to extend it, but obviously <clears> let's take us through to April when things are going to get mm. really bad according to, to the predictions and let's see where we are after that. Do you think Starmer's going to win the next election? Yes, with the I majority? do. Yes. Um, I think there's no reason why he should um, I do agree with you. I'd like to hear more about the um, direction he wants to go in. I'd well, like to see well, less... Well, anything. I'd like to see, <laughs> see um, official Labour Party policy not to be sitting on the fence on everything. Yeah. So there are things like that. I'm looking forward to party conference where I hope he will set out his stall. But, yes, I think that he's got, the, he's got it in him to be the next Prime Minister. Right. A very bullish Nigel Nelson there. He thinks secure, no policy start is going to win a majority at the next election. We will in a moment continue debate on the channel, but in particular, we're going to refer to another Labour figure. Tony Blair, yes, the man who sent millions of our kids to university, left them with loads of debt and no better jobs. He's now saying we should scrap GCSEs and A-levels. We'll debate that in just a moment. Can we take back control of our lawless cities? Well, some of your reactions coming in. Kevin says, we need a lot more police on the street for starters. You hardly ever see them patrolling the street these days. Well, that's true. You do, I mean, you simply don't see them. 
Alan says, not while the offended by everything brigade are here. Another viewer says the law needs to get much tougher. Criminals don't respect the law because it's far too soft. And Peter says, there is supposed to be a four-year sentence for carrying a knife. How many have been given that sentence? Really good question, Peter, and one that we here at GB News really ought to research. And I will, and I'll come back to you on it. As predicted on this show last night, we said over a 1,000 people would cross the channel yesterday, and as I was going home from the show, I had reports of more boats. The official number was 1,295 that crossed the English Channel yesterday. That, of course, is without those that arrived by lorry and weren't detected, or perhaps by other routes. It is an all-time record for this crisis. We, of course, approached the Home Office for comment. And they said the rise in dangerous channel crossings was unacceptable, oh, really, and that new laws would enable it to crack down on abuses with people smugglers and they will now face a maximum life-in-jail sentence. A spokesman said it was continuing preparations to deport to Rwanda. Those who made the dangerous, unnecessary, illegal journeys into the UK would be sent there. How many times do we have to hear this drivel? None of it ever comes to pass. They are failing. The public is getting increasingly angry. And as I've said before, and I'll say it again, it is posing a genuine threat to our national security. Well, if they can't do the job, what about Labour? Well, I'm joined now by Stephen Kinnock, MP for Aberavon and the Shadow Minister for Immigration. Stephen, good evening. Good evening, Nigel. Hello. Hello. So every promise that's been made by Priti Patel and indeed Boris Johnson since 2019, that they were going to get tough, going to deal with it, that the levels are unacceptable, all of it has come to absolutely nothing. I would really, honestly, genuinely, sincerely like to know what is the Labour policy? Well, you're right that uh, we're failing to deal with this issue and uh, one of the reasons is that we have uh, a Home Secretary who loves to just chase headlines rather than have a proper, tangible plan in place. Labour's plan is, is clear. Uh, rather than waste millions of pounds of taxpayers' money on the madcap Rwanda scheme uh, that isn't going to deter anybody from making these crossings, uh, let's use that money to boost the National Crime Agency. Uh, we would recruit uh, over 100 uh, specialists that would be working closely with uh, the authorities in France and Belgium uh, and other EU countries uh, to actually crack down on the evil people smugglers. There have been a number of very successful operations recently, and we can do much more. Uh, that means actually seconding specialists out uh, to those countries and working much more uh, closely with them. So cracking down on the evil people smugglers at source is vital. The other big uh, failing of, of Priti Patel is that the number of uh, asylum applications uh, that are being processed has fallen off a cliff uh, on her watch. And as a result, we have 37,000 asylum seekers in emergency hotels, costing the taxpayer £4.7 million a day. And one of the big problems with that is that a lot of some of those asylum seekers, probably around 25 to 30 percent, is how many normally fail in their asylum applications. They're not valid asylum seekers. But if you don't process them, you don't identify them as being invalid uh, and you don't, you're not therefore able to send them back to the, the first safe country that they came through. So let's actually use the wasted money on Rwanda 
put that into investing in for the NCA and in more decision makers so that we can process these asylum seekers, clear the backlog and start to tackle uh, this terrible issue. Points there, Stephen. I mean, number one, you're quite right. The National Crime Agency, in conjunction with other European police forces, did have a very successful arrest of 39 people smugglers, and for a couple of weeks, it slowed the numbers. But when you can make millions and millions of euros a week, I suspect there's always someone to replace them. But let's be clear. For those people who come to this country who do not qualify for genuine refugee status, and I would rather suggest to you that almost all of the young Albanians coming would not, be clear, would the Labour Party deport those people? You have to, first of all, process their claim. That's the problem, Nigel. If you've just got people waiting yeah. in limbo, uh, you know, what do you do with them? And also, because we failed to negotiate a successor to the Dublin regulation, we're not able to send people back to their first safe country that they alighted in. So um, the total failure of the government since Brexit to negotiate a, um, a, a successor to Dublin is a massive issue in all of this. But once you have processed uh, people, you can say whether or not their um, application for asylum is valid or not. And if it isn't, you have to be ready to deport them. That is absolutely clear. And that is Labour's Policy. Well, no, no, Stephen, 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 Stephen. The Dublin regulation, whilst we were EU members, only applied to people who had previously submitted asylum applications. I asked you a very simple question. Would a Labour government deport those who failed refugee status? And you answered me by saying we have to be prepared to. Would you or would you not? Yes. Those who are not valid asylum yes. applicants uh, should not be granted asylum and therefore they can't get into the country to work because you only get into the country on the basis of the points-based immigration system. And if you don't have the points and you don't have a sponsor employer, you can't remain in this country. Uh, now, the, the, there are big challenges around deportation. There are some countries that don't want to cooperate with us on deportation. And because we don't have uh, a successor to the Dublin regulation, we're not able to deport people back to the first safe country uh, in which they landed, which was part of the burden-sharing arrangements no. that we had when we were under Dublin. So, no. you know, we're, we're, we're stuck in that limbo. Uh, but if you don't have a points-based qualification and you don't have a sponsor employer, and you are not a valid asylum you, seeker. No, I'm sorry, I, I, Stephen Kinnock. Steve, Stephen Kinnock, genuine refugees don't need points-based systems for employment. Look, I think this is a work in progress. I thank you for coming on and explaining Labour's policy. I can't pretend I'm that much clearer at the end of it. Gold-plated public sector pensions are the real-time bombs that could bankrupt Britain, says Liam Halligan, economics editor of GB News. Put this in simple English, Liam, because it sounds desperately complicated. It is desperately complicated. Well, let's think of the national debt. That's the amount of money that the government owes. That's doubled in the last decade to £2.3 trillion. That's 23 followed by 11 zeros. It's serious money. It's 95% of the size of the entire economy, what we mm -hmm. call gross domestic product. And everyone knows about that, and the government pays debt on that interest, and it's monitored quite closely. 
But there's another debt that's even bigger. It's 2.6 trillion. It's bigger than the size of the economy, which means the national debt we talk about, quite literally, Nigel, isn't even the half of it. Because there's another whole national debt that represents the huge, gold-plated, very, very generous pension entitlements yeah. of public sector workers. Now, I'm not talking about the basic state pension that we're all entitled to as long as we make our contributions over our working life. I'm talking about the pensions for the fifth of us, it's just under a fifth, who work in the public sector. That's NHS workers, police, and in particular civil servants, you know, mandarins in Whitehall and elsewhere. And their pension arrangements are far, far more generous than those of us in the private sector enjoy, even though we pay for their pensions with our taxes. And it used to be argued often, and you'll often hear it said now, that all oh, those public sector workers, they get much lower wages they than don't. the private sector. But they don't. The average public yeah. sector wage is about 8% higher than the private so, sector, and it's been higher for years. And then they get the massive it, pension entitlements, I mean, taxpayer-backed on top of that. I mean, this is almost like pensions apartheid, isn't it, between the public sector and it the is. private sector? But isn't the real racket here that so many in the public sector are retiring at 60? Well, there have been reforms in recent years, which means people join the public sector now. They join what's called an average salary scheme, and the, the retirement ages for those are later. But for people who are in existing schemes, yeah. many of them have joined quite recently, Nigel. They're enjoying pension arrangements that were designed 50 years ago when people lived sort of, you know, 10 years less. So what do we do, Leo? I mean, we can clearly stop these gold-plated pensions for those that come into the civil service or whatever public sector it is now. But with the existing people, I mean, we're a country that likes to keep its promises. We do, but and, uh, we don't want to have a race to the bottom, but many people with gold-plated final salary schemes in the private sector, they've lost those pensions. They've had to fall yeah. back on something called the Pension Protection Fund. They don't get their inflation indexing, they don't get their pensions uprated each year for prices, as they were promised when they made years of contributions mm. in the private sector. Look, our demography is changing. We all need to share the burden of that change. But it strikes me that an awful lot of people in the public sector are getting huge pensions entitlements yeah. that are completely unrealistic, given that that's a guaranteed income every year for the rest of your life. And we're li living, you know, five, ten years more than we were when I was born not so many days. Yeah, well, I have to say, the fact that the national debt actually is double the size that it really yeah, <laughs> that we yeah, believe it yeah. is. Final thought, Liam, you know, Citibank saying inflation could go to 18%. You were writing in the Sunday Telegraph this weekend about your fears for strikes this autumn. Perhaps groups of unions, not quite a general strike, but groups yeah. of unions coming together. Goodness me, Liz Truss is going to face, if she wins, one heck of a challenge. Well, she is most likely to be Prime Minister. It is going to be a baptism of fire. It's not so much the private sector unions, though we are hearing, of course, about strikes at Felixstowe, private sector union. Yep. In theory, the train drivers are a private sector union. But only 12% of us who work in the private sector are in trade unions these days. In the public sector, Nigel, it's over 50%, back where it was in the bad old days of the 1970s and the winter of discontent. And my concern is, and there's always already the drums are beating across... Uh, the public sector, the increasingly militant public sector union bosses are going to really test an incoming Tory prime minister. There could easily be a political crisis 
I think if the civil service strikes, if the nurses strike, if the teachers strike, pretty much all at once they'll be saying, oh, we get paid less. They don't. They get paid more on average yeah, yeah. than the rest of us. And they won't mention well, their pensions. I tell you what. It could cause a political crisis. I think, Nigel, I don't like to say this, it could even topple the government at some stage. Well, we'll see whether she's an iron lady or not, won't we? Liam, Halligan, we're going to see a lot more of you over the next few <laughs> months. Now, we talked about Labour a moment ago. Let's talk about a former Labour Prime Minister, Tony Blair. Yes, not content with ruining the lives of millions of young people by saying we should send as many youngsters as possible to university. Yes, the ambition was 50% to go to university. The Conservatives supported it all the way through. Those of us like me that were sceptical were written off as being dinosaurs. No, we could run the British economy with lots and lots of cheap imported <coughs> foreign labour. Well, not content with ruining the prospects of millions of young people, Blair has intervened again in the education system. He wants to scrap GCSEs, scrap A-levels and move to a system based on continuous assessment. The one area where I might agree with him is where he says we have an analogue exam system for a digital world and that possibly is a fair point. So should we listen to Blair, scrap GCSEs and A-levels? Well, who better to speak to than Lord Kenneth Baker, the father of the GCSE? <laughs> Before we had O-levels and CSEs, and your plan was to bring it all together. Yes. I introduced GCSEs in 1980 because of a need for them. Because in those days, 50% of the students left school at 16, mm -hmm. and they needed a leaving certificate. Just as when I took the predecessor of school certificate in 1950, then 93% left school. Today, 93% stay on. So you don't need a leaving certificate, which is the purpose of having an exam at 16. We're the only country in Europe that has a demanding exam at 16. No other, none, none other country have it. They make a changes at 13, 14 and 15 mm -hmm. to, to separate out the academic from the tactical and vocational. And they're very much more successful. It's one of the reasons why they have much lower levels of youth unemployment than we have. And so Tony Blair is now right, but he has changed his view on this. Um, in 2004, he had a proposal to set up a, a phase in education from 14 to 18 with a distinct separate curriculum. Yep. Very good idea, liked by Blunkett, liked by Adonis. But Tony Blair said, no, it'll destroy A-levels, I must defend them. So eight years later, he changed his mind. I don't quarrel with MPs changing their minds, or ex-ministers of their own sort. If, if the arguments have moved on, then reflect what is right. And it's quite right. Well, Tony Blair's arguing that education now is much better than it was 25 years ago. And his marker is that nearly 60% go to university. But surely, Kenneth Baker, education is about more than just academic Absolutely. exams. Well, and, and, and we have really... We've really talked down trades and skills in this country, totally. haven't we? Absolutely, totally. And that's why for the last 12 years I've been setting up university technical colleges. We have 47 of these colleges now with nearly 20,000 students. And they don't have to do the national curriculum which Michael Gove <coughs> imposed upon the country. The national curriculum in all schools is now just eight subjects. Two exams in English, one in maths, three in science, one in a foreign language, and either history or geography. Doesn't it sound sensible? It's a grammar school curriculum. And this was imposed. Mm. And as a result, we've done nothing for those two million disadvantaged students over the last 12 years. If you look at disadvantaged children, 
in 2010, and look at them, it's the same number, about two million. And so this great experiment that somehow they bubble up has not happened. And so the only way that we're going to be a successful country is actually to have better vocational skill training in Good. our well, schools. Good. Well, I'm delighted to hear totally, that. Totally, absolutely. I'm delighted I, to For hear example, that. I want all 11-year-olds to be starting with computing at 11. Um, because of uh, what the government did uh, some years ago in abolishing a GSC, uh, there's been 40% less teaching of computing in schools since, since 2016. Isn't that mad? That's, that, no, we that live is, in a digital age. No, that, no, that is extraordinary. No, totally digital I age. did acknowledge, I thought Blair was perhaps right about that point. Final thought on this. If we're now leaving school at 18 as opposed to 16, we need some sort of end-of-school exam, don't we? Are we, yes. are we? are we thinking the sort of baccalaureate model, yes, you ba need... back to school cert, perhaps? I don't know. I mean, you need I mean, something like a tech back. This is what I favour. I would yeah. like to see a tech back which includes technical and academic subjects as well. Mm. Now, the point about this is that now 93% go on to 18. Yeah. Now, many of them leave college with no school, no employability talent at all. They've not been taught about business. And what business is saying to them, we want you, have you had any experience of working in a team? No. Have you engaged in serious problem solving? No. Have you made things with your hands and fixed things? No. Are you creative, imaginative? No. Do, are you capable of critical thinking? Now, we have to therefore change the curriculum. It's not just the exams, Nigel, I'm saying. Yeah. You have to change the curriculum. Now, there have been six reports, of which Blair's is the last, saying that the present national curriculum, which is these eight academic subjects, are not fit for purpose. And so it should, they should come down to five subjects only in test, maths, English, two science and data skills. And then each school should decide what else they want to do. Possibly okay, business studies, possibly some of the cultural subjects. All these have dropped in the last 12 years. Design and technology has dropped by 80% Yeah, schools. I saw that. And not dance, drama, music, all the things wanted by the entertainment industry, which is going through a boom at the moment now, yeah. with streaming and Netflix. We've got Dropped a lot to talk about. You know, we've got a lot and so to talk what about. What here. I would say to the two people trying to be the next Prime Minister, you've got to accept the fact that you should engage in major educational reform. It's not tinkering, it's not playing around with the new ideas like more yeah. grammar schools or anything like that. Concentrate on technical schools. Concentrate on technical education, because that's where your growth is going to come from. Your productivity growth is going to come. You can't have growth in an economy, <coughs> Nigel, you know this, unless you have skilled workers to fill it. And we've now got a massive, massive number of unfilled vacancies for data analysts, mm. for software well, engineers, I have to say, and all the rest of it. Kenneth, I have to say, your passion for this subject, decades after you were Education Secretary, is impressive very much. Thank you for contributing. It's nice to talking to you again. It's been a long time. It's too long. Far too long. Come and see us again, because education, our young people, will not go away. In a moment, I'll be joined on Talking Pints by Brian Toomey, a remarkable Irish jockey who was basically dead on the floor of the racetrack. Boy, has he made a comeback to life. It's time for Talking Pints, and I'm joined by Brian Toomey, who's an Irish lad, so we're going to do it, McGuinness. Absolutely. Cheers. Welcome Cheers, to Talking Pints. Now, Brian, you were 23 years old, professional jockey, doing pretty well. You'd had 80 winners, ratio of about one in ten rides, something like that. 
So you were up and coming, talented, doing what you loved, doing what you wanted to do. And then it's Perth, it's July 2013. You're on the favourite. You're on the favourite. Tell us what happens. Yeah, I was going there, obviously very excited. I was going up to Perth to write a favourite. Um, yeah, and things didn't go as planned, really. Uh, the horse was out of contention. It was never, never looked like winning. And unfortunately, it took a, a real heavy fall, three out. And it was lights out for a little bit. Well, you say lights out. I mean, you know, did what, what actually happened? Did the horse fall on you or...? The horse fell and uh, I don't think the horse even fell on top of me. I just, whatever way my head hit the ground at that speed and obviously being, being July, the ground was, it would have been, the ground oh. would have been quite hard. It would have been quick ground and whatever way I landed or whatever way I hit my head, I was just very unlucky. I mean, it's a very dangerous sport anyway, isn't it? Yeah, it is a very dangerous sport, but I mean, it's a passion. You're getting paid to do your hobby. It's, it's a thrilling, it's a thrilling, um, it's a thrilling job to have, and I was very lucky that I was, I was very happy with the career I was having. Um, well, you were in a good place, but I mean, you know, all the reports say that, that, that you know, the medics say you were clinically dead for seven seconds. In fact, there was even a report put out by the British Horse Racing Authority. I understand the sad news of Brian Toomey's passing. How did, I mean, how did all this happen? Yeah. Um, well, on, on the day of the injury, uh, like word had got out how bad it was, and my fa my poor family were rang up in Ireland and told to get over yesterday. You know what I mean? It was, they didn't have long, um, they didn't have long to say their goodbyes. Um, that it was very very bad, um, and obviously they came over to face the worst. Yeah. What did you, I mean, What do you remember of it, Brian? Anything? Not a single thing. I was in hospital for 157 nights, and I don't remember a single thing from there. Really? Yeah. That's how bad the damage was, or the state you were in. Yeah. How do you... I mean, I've been through a couple of knocks in my time. I've had a plane crash and goodness knows what. But I've not had... I had a fractured skull, but I've not have been through that kind of brain trauma that you've been through. I mean, what's the process to recover? It's, it's a very, very slow recovery, and it was, it was very difficult because after, after I had a, a brain injury, you, you feel like you can't open up to anyone about it. You feel like no one's going to understand what you're going through. And as a younger lad, you uh, obviously I had a lot of I had a lot of pride. I didn't want to I didn't want to let on how much it was affecting me as such. Um, because once my recovery was over, I wanted to get back living a normal life. And I was a, I was kind of afraid that if I let on how much it was affecting me, that obviously people close by would have been a little bit cautious of me going forward. So it was a, it was a very lonely recovery. Um, so it's a male pride thing? Yeah, I think so. Gosh. So you must have felt quite lonely in a funny way. Yeah, it was a very, very lonely... It was a very lonely recovery, and listen, I'm quite a... I'm quite a... Um, like, I was quite a foregone young lad. I, I had... I, like, I was... Um, tried to be the life of every party I go to, <laughs> even the ones that gay crash, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, um, it, it did. It did. It was. It was very difficult because um, from the moment I could get up and walk again, I was. I was. I tried to live life to the full, kind of thing. Your career, what you set your mind to do, what you worked at, what you travelled for, was kind of gone. 
you tried to make a comeback, but it was never going to work, was it? No, um, I'm surprised I ever got back. I don't know how many doctors I conned in order to get back because in order to get past fit to ride again, you have to be at no greater risk than every other jockey. So obviously AP McCoy was still riding at the time. I had to be at no greater risk than AP McCoy. But my last fall, I lost consciousness. I had a metal plate in my head. So I, I feel like that I was... Um, I can't believe I ever got back, but I was glad because it was a goal I was working towards, yeah. and I, I was—it was the only thing that kind of kept me, kept the drive. When you look at it, Brian, you know you were alive, recovering, but you'd lost your career. You had an horrendous injury. Did you feel you'd been lucky or unlucky? I feel like. I mean, I count my blessings every day. I feel very, very lucky. Um, th there was a time after the injury when I was a lot younger. I, I felt very hard done by, but with that all behind me, I'm, I'm the luckiest man in the world. To be honest, I can't believe, I can't believe what I've been lucky enough to overcome. And I mean, there's a lot to take from it. It's, it's, it's made me far more determined. It's, it's, I'm, I'm far more driven. And yeah, I've, I've been very, very lucky. Now, you're living in Lambourne, you're still very much in racing world, and I understand you've got a new ambition, a new drive, you want to become a trainer. Yeah, um, it's, it's, it's my only goal, I, I want to become a trainer, and yeah, it, it's, I've completed my trainer's course maybe five years ago, but, um, and I've, I've been striving to achieve that ever since, but I'm, it's probably a blessing really that I haven't, it hasn't happened quickly because I've had a lot a long time to think about it. I've got many plans in place that I'm ready to put forward when I, when I get the chance or when I get the opportunity to start. But it's um, I, I, I've <coughs> I've been around a lot of people. I've learned I've learned off some very good people. Every day is a school day, so I'm st you're still learning. Um, so yeah, hopefully in time I'll I'll get started and I can train a horse for you. Well, you never know. I'm not sure. I'm quite in the income category. That would make the headlines. <laughs> it certainly would. And hey, you, you know, you've, you've really pushed me on this one. I might have a leg in a horse that you train. And, you know, racing, the Irish connection with racing, of course, is absolutely huge. You know, I was at... Uh, in fact, the last Panny Guinness I had was at Cheltenham earlier yeah, on this I, year. And there are more Irish at Cheltenham than there are English, I think. I thought I was taking you out of a comfort zone with the Guinness book. No, 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 perfectly happy. Don't worry about that. Should young people, young boys, young girls, who love horses, love riding, when they look at you, what happened to you, should it put them off? I don't think so. Listen, it's a passion. It's... Um... It's, it's, it's a very exciting hobby to start and then if you can have a career out of it in the end it's I feel you're very lucky I mean I wouldn't I wouldn't put anyone off it yeah it's very dangerous but walking across the road is dangerous even after the injury I had to reset my driving test and I passed thankfully but well um, I was told that you have a 25% chance of having a car crash I mean so anything in life is dangerous so I couldn't put anyone off Right and the love for racing, the love for horses, the love for the sport, the love for the industry. Yeah, it's it's a very exciting industry to be in. I mean, you're surrounded by a beautiful animal every day. Um, I mean, horses can't talk to you, so it's an opinions game, really. So, um, <laughs> good job, I've got good opinions, I think. But it's no, listen, I, I couldn't put anyone off it. It's it's top sport. 
Well, I've got to tell you, Brian, for a man who was clinically dead, you're doing pretty well. Not too, too bad. I think we've both been very lucky, to be fair. And yes. even if anyone's seen what you've been through, it would inspire anyone. I think it's. I think the, the, the one thing I would say, if anyone is going through anything like that, the one thing that got me by was having a goal, having that drive to get the life back that I had, or do you know what I mean, to, 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 for my life to progress. Not to be a victim. Exactly. And um, as I say, I feel very lucky. Inspiring story, Brian. Thank you for joining me. Thanks very much. On Talking Pounds. Well, quite a story, that. Now, I've got two minutes left with you, and I will go for some Barrage the Farages. What have you sent me today? Robbo asks, gun and knife crime seems to have become commonplace now in our society. Why do you think law and order is breaking down so badly? Robbo, there are lots and lots of different reasons. There is family breakdown. There is community breakdown that I talked about at the top of the programme. You know, when people living in cities don't even know the names of the next-door neighbours, don't, in many cases, share interests, share culture, or maybe even share language, that is a pretty bad start. But I thought... Our conversation on policing was really, really interesting. You know, they've intellectualised policing. They've taken policing off the streets. Listen, there are lots and lots of reasons. I can't answer it all in one question. But do we have a problem in our big cities? You bet we do. Is it impossible to turn it around? I'll never accept that after what Rudy Giuliani did for New York as mayor. Mark asks me, is that really the view of Westminster out of your studio, or is it graphics? Mark, I promise you, that is it. And as the darker evenings come, you'll see it lit up, you'll see the cars going over the bridge. You're quite right. Most TV studios absolutely con you with the background. This is the real deal, and it is, without doubt, not just the best studio view in London, it may well be the best studio view in the whole of the world. How about that? And I'm very fortunate to be here, as is the Stein chap who's coming after me. But I haven't finished yet. Karen asks, if the new PM offered you a job to sort out the migrant problem, would you accept it and could you do it? No, not as a member of the ECHR. Not as a member, a treaty organisation where their court can overrule our court and where, under Article 8, if your 16th cousin removed once visited Coventry, you'll be allowed to stay in the country because you have the right to a family life. You should never accept a job in life that you can't do, either because, the, either because the game is set against you or because you don't have the ability to do it. Could I be tough enough to do it? Could I take the abuse that Tony Abbott took? You bet your life I could, but you need the tools to be able to do it. 1,295 across the channel yesterday. Today is lower. It's 160. In the next three days, there are two absolutely flat, calm days coming. There's a lot more coming our way, and Westminster is doing nothing.